0: You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The 6th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhubie podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. David Heffernan from University College Cork. His paper was entitled, The Composition for Cess Controversy and the Position of the Old English, in mid-Elizabethan Ireland, circa 1575
1: to 1584. I just mentioned there, uh, I'm in receipt of a Charlemont Grant, and I'd just like to acknowledge uh, the Royal Irish Academy for providing it for the the research for this paper. The composition process controversy has rightfully been identified as a major occurrence in the history of mid-Elizabethan Ireland, and in particular a cornerstone in the speedily changing nature of the Crown's relationship with the old English community of the Pale. I'm not going to attempt to provide a detailed overview of the entire episode in this paper, not least because the surviving documentary record for the controversy during the period from 1575 to 1578, from amongst the state papers alone, encapsulates over 300 documents. So to attempt to do justice to this in 20 minutes wouldn't be feasible. Rather, I wish to examine a number of facets of the controversy controversy which I think raise interesting questions. I also wish to argue that the controversy can't be looked at in isolation. It was but one episode in the pale community's efforts to negotiate against punitive crown taxation throughout the reign of Elizabeth I, albeit the most vocal. It was also just one issue exciting unrest amongst not just the old English but also new English officials in mid and late Elizabethan Ireland. As such, it should be seen as symptomatic of widespread unrest at spiralling levels of corruption and official misconduct at this time. The background to the composition process lies in the government's incursion into and subsequent plantation of the Midlands region of Leach and Offaly from the mid-1540s onwards. In order to pr- provide supplies to the enlarged army needed to conduct this war, the Viceroy Edward Bellingham had recourse to an old measure whereby the monarch's prerogative could be exercised to requisition goods from the old English community of the Pale at a price below the market value. The Cess, as it became known from assessment was only sporadically utilised until the late 1550s, when the new Viceroy, the third Earl of Sussex, began having recourse to it every year. It aroused considerable organised opposition from within the Pale in the early 1560s, and this, along with charges of maladministration, contributed in large part to the downfall of Sussex's government. Typically, the cess and other criticisms of official misconduct in Ireland are then forgotten about in the historiography, until the composition controversy arose well over a decade later. However, recourse to the sess continued unabated, as did unrest at both recourse to it and official misconduct throughout the late 1560s and early 1570s. Thus, we have mysterious letters showing up on the desks of officials in the Exchequer office in Dublin at this time, signed by Tom Trout and John Justifier, informing their recipients of the inevitable repercussions they would face for their corrupt dealings. Grievances at the Cess also lay behind offers, such as that made from the sons of some of the minor nobility and gentry of the Pale to the 1st Earl of Essex in 1574, while undertaking his enterprise to plant in north-east Ulster. Here they offered to aid Essex in planting Antrim and Down if they would be given lands there, and that this was preferable to trying to prosper in the Pale, where they would have the burden of the Cess upon them. Thus, by the mid-1570s, there was a long-standing grievance against the Cess and a long-standing need to find an alternative. The scheme known as Composition for Cess was largely articulated by the clerk of the Elizabethan Privy Council, Edmund Tremaine, an extra-conciliar agent of Burleigh's, who dispatched Tremaine to Ireland on numerous important missions from 1569 onwards. In a series of treatises prepared in the early 1570s, Tremaine argued that Ireland could only be reformed by establishing a large military force there, which could overrule the Irish Lords. Such a large establishment could only be maintained, he believed, through a system of national taxation. Accordingly, all Lords would have to, it's up to quote, be brought to declare the limits of their territories and who be their tenants, sire or otherwise and that known, there might be such a composition by the consent and good allowance of the same lords, as it should certainly be known what the lord, the lord should receive and what the tenant should pay. And though not at the first by penny rent, yet with some certainty of such provision or service to be taken and done as shall be agreed upon between the lord and the, and the tenant, so as there may be a certainty what the one shall give and the other take. There's a danger in placing too much emphasis on the terminology here. Combo- compound or composition, such as the terms were used in the 16th century, simply meant to agree or an agreement, and was regularly used in correspondence. Equally, the novelty of Tremaine's composition scheme should not be overstated. For England provided many examples of similar arrangements in the decades prior to the first articulation of his initiative in 1571. Composition agreements had been arrived at between the Crown and the Shires as early as Edward VI's days whereby the latter compounded to provide a fixed sum in cash and kind to the crown in discharge of the obligation to provide profane for the royal household. The number of such composition agreements increased considerably from the outset of Elizabeth's reign, with Cecil particularly eager to promote compounding. Moreover, the scale on which it was envisaged for Ireland also had an exemplar in England. The Duke of Somerset had attempted in 1548 to totally replace royal purveyance with a system of national taxation charged per head of livestock. So, the course of the controversy which arose as a result of Sydney's efforts to establish the composition are complex, and the following account will necessarily be brief. Upon his arrival in office in the autumn of 1575, Sydney was determined to introduce the composition immediately in Munster and in Connacht. Accordingly, once new provincial presidents, uh, William Drury in the South, and Nicholas Malby and Connacht, were finally placed in office, office, measures were undertaken there to institute a system of taxation along that proposed by Tremaine. However, in keeping with Tremaine's idea that composition was to primarily be used with the regional Irish lords, Sydney did not attempt a composition elsewhere. Accordingly for the pale, he elected to impose an exorbitantly high cess for 1576, It has previously been suggested that this was designed with the aim of making the community there more amenable to coming to a fixed annual sum, to replace the continuing arbitrariness of the cess. I'm not fully convinced that he initially intended any any sort of composition in the Pale, and there is no indication that he intended to do so in the surviving records for late 1575 and 1576. Rather, reference to a composition arose following the new controversy over the cess. This controversy came to a fruition early in 1577, as a broad coalition of the pale nobility and gentry, led by the Viscount Baltinglass, the Baron of Holt, and a number of prominent pale families such as the Plunkets, Talbots and Cheevers, forced appeal to Sydney and the Irish Council directly, citing an inability to maintain the level of contribution demanded by Sydney. When their demands met with little response in January 1577, they appealed directly to the Privy Council in England. It was at this juncture that they sent three prominent pale lawyers, Henry Barnell, Richard Netterville and Barnaby Scarlock, to courts to lay their positions directly before the Queen and Privy Council. There was a bizarre incident a couple of months after that where they actually tried to disavow the fact that they were their agents at all, which, why were they there? Um, The sending of the three three lawyers was significant because the country's argument now became that the cess was quite possibly unconstitutional. When the three lawyers arrived at court in March 1577, they were given a hearing and then committed to the fleet for questioning the royal prerogative to take cess. Meanwhile, negotiations continued between the leaders of the Pale in Ireland and Sydney's administration. Months would pass with little progress made, particularly so because the Palesmen insisted on arguing that the cess was a recent invention, no older than the late 1540s, and thus illegitimate. This was, of course, complete nonsense. With cess being practised for far longer, but the scale of it had increased. So, if you look at a lot of the documentary records for the 1530s, cess is quoted quite extensively in them, and it's in the 1534 ordinances for the government of Ireland. Nevertheless, as the summer turned into autumn, the tide began to turn against Sydney as the agents were given a more favourable hearing at court. This was somewhat neutralised in the autumn as the Lord Chancellor William Jarrod arrived at court to represent Sydney's government. Having read deeply of the official records in Ireland, Gerard was able to prove that purveyance of the kind being required was not unusual in Ireland. Accordingly, Sydney was given license to arrest the leaders of the opposition in Ireland. Nevertheless, it was clear that some compromise would have to be reached. The government could not do without the palesman's subventions. Though months of further stalemate would ensue when Sydney's removal from office became clear in mid spring fifteen seventy eight. The way was cleared for negotiation of a new arrangement with the Pale, largely organised by Gerard upon his return to Ireland in the summer. These negotiations lasted for nearly a year. It was not until May 1579, so it's usually kind of suggested in the historiography that this had all been wrapped up in 1578, it was was not until May 1579 that the Privy Council sent a binding resolution to Drury and his council giving what they thought was closure to the episode. The pale community were to have the obligation to provide cess for the viceroy's hu- households drastically reduced, while the government committed to reducing the abuses of cessors of the barony and victuallers. In return, they would provide some 9,000 pecks of oats to provide for 300 uh, crown horse. Most importantly, they combined it, compounded to provide one penny per day for 1,000 soldiers, amounting in the year to just over 1,500 pounds. Thus, after over three years of disputes, an arrangement had apparently been reached. This was how the controversy played out. But What has not been noted in the historiography of the controversy is the Pale Community Scheme was just one of the numerous solutions devised at the time. Numerous other proposals also also surfaced around 1578, purporting to offer alternative ways to finance the government of Ireland and provide for the military establishment there. For instance, the Irish Secretary of State, John Chaloner, drew up a detailed schema for the Irish finances in 1578. In his view, the Pale Community's offer of a penny a day for 1,000 soldiers was duplicitous, and the country ought to provide closer to £5,000 per year. He went further than this, though, and suggested that implementation of other measures such as coinage manipulation... Resumption of the impost on wines and other wares and compounding with the lords, particularly for Benoct, Sorin and Sess, would make the government of Ireland self-financing by generating some £30,000 per year. A further proposal was submitted to Burley in April 1578 by William Green and Stephen Ackwart, two figures with experience of victualling and financing in Ireland, who offered to oversee the supply of 1,000 soldiers calculated on the basis that each soldier would require four pence per day. Finally, the master of the rolls, Nicholas White, composed a plot in fifteen fifteen seventy eight 1578 which gave extensive details on how to reduce expenditure, augment the revenue, ease the set, and victual the soldiers. White's proposal leaned towards a fundamental overhaul of Crown Government rather than a temporary expedient to end the agitation current in the pale. For instance, his counsel focused on expanding the court system to increase the inflow to the exchequer and reforming the offices of the surveyor and auditor in tandem to curb embezzlement of monies which ought to be accruing to the Crown. More dramatically, he argued that all senior officers should be demoted to lesser ranks and paid drastically reduced stipends accordingly. This should be applied from the vice-regal office downwards, with White proposing that a Lord Deputy was unnecessary and should be replaced with a Lord Justice. So essentially what he was actually leaning towards was the idea that you would have magnate rule to a certain extent that Ormond and Kildare would be given a greater place in the government of Ireland. And Gerard actually agreed with him in his uh, notes and presented a court in late 1577. Uh, one final set of documents merits attention in terms of the debates which were underway in 1578. At this time, a controversial treatise which the Earl of Sussex had written in 1568 arguing that coin and livery should not be immediately prohibited was apparently given fresh appraisal. That Sussex's proposal was given fresh appraisal in 1578 indicates how willing policy speculators were to give consideration to controversial, controversial proposals for financing the government as a result of the controversy over the composition. The response of officials in Ireland in 1578 was a litany of objections, with figures such as Nicholas White, Nicholas Malby and John Challoner, all staunchly objecting to Sussex's thesis and claiming the coin and livery had to be prohibited. But although Sussex's stance was rebuffed, it is significant that the fragmented political environment brought on by the controversies was leading to discussion of such a radical alternative as a piecemeal tolerance of coin and livery. Yet it was also not the case that the cess or composition were the sole items of censure at this time by the old English, or indeed new English political observers. The 1570s had witnessed growing opposition to endemic levels of official corruption in Ireland and misconduct within the army. This varied from embezzlement of money from the exchequer office, the pocketing of fines for... Pardons and felons' goods and land concealments. Indeed, new means of defrauding the state of massive amounts of money were being devised year on year, the most recent in the mid-1570s being exploitation of the Concordatum Fund for extraordinary payments into which Barley launched, launched an investigation in the late 1570s. Such was the scale of fraud and corruption within Irish officialdom that the first Earl of Essex, Walter Devereux, not long after his arrival in Ireland in the autumn of 1573, described Ireland as a science to to fleece anything that might be had from her majesty. Old English commentators were front and centre in reporting the scale of this corruption to the metropolitan government in England. The composition controversy has to be understood in light of these petitions, For to the Palesman, the cess was essentially being used as a prerogative right of a monarch who need not draw upon it excessively if she was not excessively defrauded by her officials in Ireland. In Tudor times, such grievances as the Old English expressed at this time could have been addressed at a very specific forum, Parliament. Plans were underway in 1577 to hold a Parliament, with William Gerard and Edward Fitton attesting to discussion of the same in May. Plans had progressed substantially enough by the autumn that Jared's trip to court was also to carry over draft legislation as part of his mission to court to deal with the cess agents. Given the current tension with the Palesmen, it could be assumed that these briefs would have included measures to legislate around the cess and the economic burden imposed on on the pale to maintain the military. Yet there was little of this. Other than a measure to provide some of the Queen's lands to fund the maintenance of the deputy's household, and thus offset some of the Pale's burden to do so, few of the other measures proposed were even remotely related to the ongoing constitutional difficulties the Crown was encountering with the Pale community. Indeed, the overwhelming concern, as expressed in the head sent over, and repeatedly expressed throughout 1578, was the call of Parliament to renew the statute on the impost of wines, which was due to expire soon. Other predominant issues concerned the extension of liberties in Kilkenny and reordering of church properties in the Diocese of Ferns. Indeed, such banal issues as the importation of longbows from England and strictures around map making were dealt with, but the prominent and pressing grievances of the Old English were generally absent. Yet no parliament, even one failing to address Old English grievances, was to be forthcoming. Months later, in April 1578, Sydney wrote to the Queen imploring that one should be held before he left office, in which resolution might be given to the agreements being negotiated with the Pale community. Though here again he was clear that the major motive was to renew the custom on impost of wines. Later in the summer, he was informed by the Privy Council that the, in- that the Queen was inclined not to assent to a Parliament as she did not wish for a further drain on finances. So the, the typical thing of Elizabethan Ireland. Um, Accordingly, she believed that most things could be progressed with by decree of the Viceroy and Council rather than by statute law. As such, the only pressing matter was the law on imposts and the Queen would determine at some convenient time in the future when to call a Parliament for this. The initiative continued to be delayed throughout 1578 and early 1579 owing to distractions elsewhere until the outbreak of the Desmond Rebellion terminally delayed it. Parliament would not eventually meet until 1585, and when it did, as Victor Treadwell highlighted many years ago, assess was at the heart of its proceedings. These questions of a Parliament in 1578, or the alternative proposals put forward to the government to finance the army at this time, are important things to consider when assessing the composition controversy. But there is a much bigger issue. An additional article in the final agreement made with the Pale in May 1579 stipulated that if they were so required, the Viceroy could elect to have the Pale community provide for the victualling of the 1,000 men in lieu of the one penny per day. Indeed, if we speculate that each soldier's daily victuals might run to seven or eight pence per day at normal market prices, at a stroke, William Drury, or one of his successors, could increase the cost to the Pale community seven or eightfold. I won't go into detail too much here, but suffice to say that when James Fitzmaurice arrived in Munster from the Continent several weeks later, it wasn't long before the agreements yet again became elastic. By 1581, the Chief Justice of Common Pleas, Robert Dillon, noted the composition agreements had been broken, and soldiers wandered the pale exacting as much as 12 pence per day. But being unwilling to count continents outright opposition to fresh subventions during the four years of the war, no renewed opposition to crown taxation occurred during the Second Desmond Rebellion. Nevertheless, no sooner had the rebellion been all but ended early in 1583, but fresh petitions began arriving in England from members of the pale community, bemoaning the burden of the cess. In particular, opposition from Meade was acute, and agents bearing familiar names like Barnell were appointed to argue against the intolerable burden of the cess imposed on the region. Thus it is premature to suggest that the controversy which arose in the mid-1570s was concluded by 1578. Both it and the open expression of old English resentments were quelled by events. They did not subside. So to conclude composition for CES Controversy, which played out primarily between late 1576 and late 1578, was most certainly a major occurrence in the history of Middle Elizabethan Ireland. It became a dominant issue in correspondence between the Dublin administration and Whitehall during these two and a half years. It also came to shape Sydney's second administration and was integral to the development of the Crown's relation with the old English community of the Pale at this time. But it needs to be looked at in the wider context of growing disaffection with Crown government in Ireland and disillusion with the rampant corruption and militarisation of the country. Criticism criticism which ranged ranged from abuses within the military executive to extreme financial corruption within the civil executive. Nor should it be looked at in isolation. It was certainly the the period of most extreme agitation since the opposition to the Cess in the early 1570s but unrest at such exactions had been persistent, albeit more muted, throughout the late 1560s and early 1570s. Moreover, although the reaching of an agreement with the pale community to provide for 1,000 soldiers in 1579 and the subsequent outbreak of the Desmond and Balton class rebellions soon after tempered opposition to these exactions, no sooner had these rebellions been quelled than the pale community yet again began petitioning have the economic burden on them reduced. Additionally, in looking at the con- composition controversy, attendant developments which have not been explored need to be addressed. Alternative methods of funding the Government of Ireland were proposed in response to the controversy, most strikingly by tolerating and even incorporating certain aspects of the Gaelic exactions. Finally, there were plans afoot to hold an Irish Parliament in 1578. It is curious that the draft legislation of this included <clears throat> virtually no provisions to address some of the old English community's very pressing concerns. This underlies the fact that Parliament in Tudor Ireland, contrary to Parliament in England, was more often than not a rubber stamping measure and grievances were rarely allowed to be aired at length. Thus, in-depth exploration of the composition process controversy opens up a wide number of issues, concerning the position of the Old English and wider government policy in Middle Elizabethan Ireland. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tutorstuartarland.com.